we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. So, yeah, we've both just watched the magnificent final concluding film for Deadwood. Deadwood. We've talked about Deadwood before, I we have. haven't we? But I've just had a really annoying text from Erica Wagner, our former guest, who's done, I think, three uh, backlists. <laughs> she met Ian McShane at a party <gasps> last night. So she's just saying, hang die, those of you who know them. <laughs> hang die! Hang die! In ex-Chelsea's. Uh, um, publisher had sent uh, Ian McShane my uh, New Statesman's piece and he's in caps he just wrote to thank me <laughs> Swaringen in my inbox and then have a lovely weekend you limber dick cocksucker which, <laughs> for those of you who've seen the movie will know that that's a anyway great great news for Erica of course I'd love to meet Ian McShane but I think it's it's Al Swaringen who you really want to meet I, so good is that characterisation. We're, we're going to limit ourselves, aren't we, to just saying one thing that we liked about... We've, we've wanged on about Deadwood on here before. I've just finished doing a rewatch of the whole thing and then into the movie. And if, if you don't know this, listeners, Deadwood got cancelled after its third season and so I mean, 15 be, years be, later they've made... Finally, they finally managed to persuade HBO to make a, a movie, didn't they, to conclude yeah. it. I think they had a, a series arc for the fourth season that didn't happen. And whether the film follows that arc or not, I'm not sure. I know someone will tell me. But it, it brings everything together very satisfyingly. It lets you say goodbye to the, that amazing collection of characters. And although, as you say, Ian McShane is, of course, magnificent in it, I felt, watching the film, that the focus on the character of Seth Bullock and on the performance by Timothy Oliphant yeah. actually was 100% the right thing to do. Watching it again, it was his performance that I thought, oh, this is the, what's the Lebowski thing? This is the rug yeah. holding the room together. The rug holding that character, the room together. That character oh, is the spine of I, the program. And I think there weren't any bad performances in this. And if you've spent time, if you've you know, fallen in love with those characters, I... I could not imagine that you could have done a better job and i spent most of it weeping also one can see uh, one could see deadwood as a chronicle of village life albeit segway perhaps not a village you would choose to live in <laughs> or, or indeed get to live in get for to. very long but right let's start hello and welcome to backlisted the podcast that gives new life to old books 
Today, you find us in Tanglewood Cottage in the deceptively quiet village of Silverstream. On the table in front of us lies a plate of Mrs Goldsmith's breakfast buns. Next to them, a copy of a new novel, <laughs> Disturber of the Peace by John Smith. <laughs> I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. Uh, I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is... Backlisted listener and novelist, Shelley Harris. Hello, it's lovely to be here. (laughs) Shelley has published two novels. Her debut, Jubilee, uh, which was published by Vivian Felton Nicholson, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize and was a Radio 4 book at bedtime and a Richard and Judy selection. It was indeed. And her second novel, Vigilante, about a feminist wannabe superhero, was described by the Times as entertainment wrapped round a tense thriller. Are you happy with that? Not a yeah, okay. given. She is a lecturer in creative writing at the University of Reading and is working on her third novel at the moment. And her favourite book is Michael Shaban's novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Now, I worked for the publisher of that novel when it was published in the UK oh. and I spent years telling people how much I loved it before I read it. <laughs> <laughs> but fortunately... You read it and loved it. Fortunately, what Shelley, a... as you know, it is an absolutely fantastic novel. It is a great It book. is a, an authentic masterpiece. Yeah. That Shab- is the hill that I will die on, sorry. No, 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 uh, I think Shaben's piece... And also, I'm going to mention this again, because as you know, my favourite piece of critical writing in the last 20 years is Michael Shaven's essay about the films of Wes Anderson. And my second favourite piece of critical writing in the last 20 years is Michael Shaven's essay about reading Finnegan's Wake. Do you have another favourite book by Michael Shaven? That is such an interesting question because I think his work can be varied um, in quality. I do. But I think The Wonder Boys, actually. I think for me, The Wonder Boys... I probably oh. told people I read that as well. Oh, <laughs> bad man. That was before I reformed my character, of course. Yeah. I read the what? latest one, uh, Moonglow. Moon, yeah. Which kind of, I like, yeah. I mean, you know, he, he, he's a. But Cavalier and Clay, I think, is a. I, I think you're right. I think it is a genuine. It's funny how Cavalier and classic. Clay. Cavalier and Clay is loosely based on the lives and careers of. People like Stan Lee yes. and Jack Kirby, mm. who, yes. of course, are much, much more famous in their own right than they were 20 years ago when Shaven wrote that novel. That's true. Yes, that's true, actually, because we've had this, this kind of outpouring of um, superhero movies. and The way that Stan Lee was pushed to the front of the, as the figurehead of those films within the films is significant. I I think you could go back to Cavalier and Clay and find, you know, it's the story, isn't it, of the genesis of comic books. It is. The Jewish experience of. I will bang on for the whole podcast about it, so I will just restrict myself a bit. But he just managed to be both ridiculously clever. It is a an incredibly conceptually clever book Mm. and an incredibly cleverly written book, but also it is utterly throat-grabbing and heart-grabbing. And also just his flipping sentences, just to read that as a writer and think, OK, now I know what is possible. <laughs> you know. the, these are exactly the sort of things I used to say about it before I read it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we were right. So that's probably, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, More the, by luck than judgment, Andy, for you, I think. The book that Shelley has chosen to talk to us about today is Miss Bunkle's book. 
by D.E. Dorothy Emily Stevenson. First published by Herbert Jenkins in 1934 and republished in an exquisite new edition by Persephone Books in 2008. But before we lose ourselves in the tangled skeins of village gossip, Andy, what have you been reading? Um, I've been reading more poetry. More poetry, yes. Because I read poetry now. Um, partly because uh, I was saying to Shelley on the way up here that um, we're, re- we're recording quite a few episodes of that listed quite close to one another uh, and we're reading several books that are very long <laughs> and every so often I, I like to read something for me <laughs> and uh, so that's been a, a slim volume of poetry I want to talk about a book by Sam Riviere called 81 Austerities which was recommended to me by the poet and critic Jeremy Noel Todd in fact I should pin the list of recommendations that I got we should put them on the website or something I very specifically asked for single volumes of poetry rather than selected or collected editions because I'm interested in reading volumes of poetry as the poet originally wanted to present them to the reader and one of the reasons I like 81 Austerities by Sam Riviere is because it's a book that actually engages with its status as a book it has chapters it has editorial notes which seem real at first and then become increasingly bogus as they go on, which really made me laugh. And it's got a fantastic index with eight entries, basically saying that there are eight subjects of all the poems in this book. <laughs> and if you'd like to know what the subjects of his, po- his work yeah. is, poetry, pornography, death, <laughs> the modern, longing... Dramatis Personae, Encounters, <laughs> Names. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read two or three of the poems. They are funny and thought-provoking and they really engage with their status as words on a page. That's what I like about them. I like, the thing I like about books. I like books, novels that at some point acknowledge to you, the reader, that they are a book, that what you are reading is not life, but is a thing that has been printed on paper and bound with glue and put in your hands through a mechanical process. In that Calvino kind of... Exactly. So so here's the... This opens... This volume opens. The first chapter is called Girlfriend Heaven. And the first poem is called Crisis Poem. In three years, I have been awarded £48,000 by various funding bodies, councils and publishing houses for my contributions to the art. And I would like to acknowledge the initiatives put in place by the government and the rigorous assessment criteria under which my work has thrived since 2008. I have written 20 or 21 poems, developed a taste for sushi, Decent wine. Bought my acquaintances many beers, many of whom have never worked a day in their lives. (laughs) How would you like to touch my palm and divine how long my working week has been? Mostly I watch films and stare (laughs) and try to decide what to wear. Speaking as a poet, 
I would rather blow my brains out than run out of credit as the biographer of the famously unresolved 50s poet Suicide has commented, capital is the index of meaning. Anything is better than stealing from the co-op with a clotted heart. Without it, you don't survive. Very good. What do you think, Shelley? It's fabulous. (laughs) I'm going to buy it. But also, it does make me think. There are connections there with Miss Bunkle's book. So many connections. Here's a poem that has no connections with Miss Bunkle's book. It's called Special New Brand. And I think this is a poem about the group Pavement. I don't know for sure that it is, but there's a couple of lines in here and the general feeling of of this being a poem by a man, perhaps in early middle age. I don't know how old Sam Riviere is. Anyway, it's called Special New Brand. What am I doing here? Thought I liked you guys. Thought we shared something similar. Suspicions about culture. Now everyone is singing your songs. I used to listen to this one on my mini-disc player trying to get some sleep in lousy Australia. Now I'm feeling like a fucking alien, feeling betrayed. I have to accept you sold out, just like the others. I'm the same as all these assholes. This 37-year-old balding website designer in a flat cap, headbanging to the haircut song. Dudes, seriously starting to think, I'd rather go to church. (laughs) (laughs) I've got one more, okay? Dream poem. This is my favourite poem in this book. Dream poem. I know what you're thinking. It's dull unless they're sex dreams. Dreams about violent murders. Mine are pretty banal. I dreamed I wrote a poem beginning high and ending. See you later. The middle part was amazing. That's the part I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) I was sitting on a platform high above the jungle. This all feels really familiar, probably from something I've seen on TV. I was dressed up as a witch doctor and used this stick of judgment, taking back the names of creatures, restoring them to myth. I was doing wisely with it. In my dream, the poem didn't have this assonance that's creeping in. (laughs) After I'd taken back everything, I kept hold of my stick using it to designate the categories that really matter while adding bones and wings to my hat. Sitting up here, out of danger. I hate this. I like that. (laughs) So that book is published by Faber. It's called 81 Austerities by Sam Riviere. It came out about eight years ago, so it's not really front list or back list, but it is worth reading. Has he published more? Yes, yeah, he had a volume out about three years ago called Kim Kardashian's Wedding. Oh, yes. And That's... he's also published a novel called Safe Mode, which I have uh, bought a copy of, but haven't read yet. John, what have you been reading this week? Well, as you know, I've been ploughing through nature writing in a fairly major way, doing my... Um, Wainwright judging and one of the rewards is you get to read the stuff you wouldn't normally read one of the perils is that there are things that you like that don't make it onto the shortlist and one of the books I'm going to talk about today hasn't made it onto the shortlist which was announced um, on July the 2nd it's called How to Catch a Mole by Mark Hamer you know it's a book about a mole catcher it's kind of interesting lost rural craft but it's it's much better than that might make it sound it's a sort of reflection on certainly on relationship with nature it's got a subtitle i do not like 
How to catch a mole and find yourself in nature. Ah, yeah, do not like. And actually, it does, does the book no service because it is actually a beautiful book, I think. And philosophically, it has that kind of sense of... Basically, Mark Hamer, the key to his life is he, was, he had a bad relationship with his father. He left home and became homeless as a teenager and slept rough and then ended up getting a job on the railway and then ended up going to art school and then has spent most of the rest of his life, I'm guessing that he must be in his 60s now, working in rural Wales as a mole catcher. And he writes about moles, as you would imagine, brilliantly. He knows a lot about them. You have to. Moles are very interesting creatures, and I won't bore you. I'm, I also like a mole. I mean, you know, but it's but they're the great. You know, the the, the moles moles are, as you know, sub, the suburban nightmare. So they come. I think at, we might have unexpectedly some peak backlisted yeah. moment. Well, they come. They, they, they come and they. They come, they come and fuck up your lawn, Andy, let's be honest. I know. Anyway, he's very good at catching them. I like books by people who do things rather than people who wander through like tourists. He's somebody who makes a living out of his, his nature writing. He's like, like, you know, that's why I like shepherds. It's, they're, they're actually, they've got a job. They've got a job to do. They're not just Fotherington Thomasing around in the countryside yeah. saying, isn't it beautiful, isn't it amazing? So I'll read you a little bit. It's probably much easier. At 15, when I left school in the cold black and north, I should say also there's poetry, some of his poetry, which is, which is good, planted through the book. I mean, it, it's not a barrel of laughs, but it is rather beautiful. At 15, when I left school in the cold black and north, I escaped the life of a mole. I was too tall at six foot two. The mine boss said I would crack my skull and break my back. My father, who ran the village pub, tried to get me down there to scrape coal from the walls like the strong and stocky short-armed men around me. The hidden, lone mole draws my interest but we are not the same, the mole and me. I didn't fit in the hole. I was apprenticed to work with steel instead, welding, cutting, drilling, rolling and bending massive steel plates. I didn't stay there very long. Less than a year I was pushed from the nest. I walked. There was no scent of home. I'm drawn back to that wandering outdoor life and when I retire from working the earth, which is not too far away now, I think about loading up my backpack and walking across it again for a while. But I can't bear to spend too long away from Peggy... As I get older and my life goes slow and comfortable, I often think about the bittersweet joy and simple freedom of living outdoors, wrapped in a blanket on a pile of dry twigs or leaves and looking up through the leaves of a small hedgerow oak and into the sky as the night falls, watching the silhouette of the blackbird singing from the topmost branch of the tree. That was a life without worry. I would live or die and neither would matter. Even lying under a pier once, starving and feeling that I was dying, I felt sad, but I also reasoned that it was perfectly acceptable to feel sad in that situation. Goodbyes are sad. There is no avoiding sadness in life, although it seems that happiness is easier to avoid. I have, in my time, deliberately tried to die, but I'm still here, and life has always won on its own terms, so I stopped trying to make the choice for myself. It seemed that it was not my decision to make, and I began allowing life to happen. It feels much better that way. I learned it from the birds who just flew and nested and ate and made new birds and the hedgehogs who just shuffled and ate and made new hedgehogs and they all died and went back to mud in their own good time. Having worked all my life, created a family, discovered a home, I feel as secure as a working-class man ever feels and I feel a sense of equality again with the crow and the toad and the hawthorn, with the rain and wind. I am them and they are me. I lost my self-importance early on and do not want to differentiate myself from the world around me. 
I'm just another animal, another tree, another wildflower in the meadow among billions of others, each unique in their own way, each just like the others in other ways, each one just another expression of nature trying to survive. There is something deeply magnificent in being just ordinary. I know how to survive in the kind of nature that constantly circles around me, and I'm in love with it. I trust it to behave in the way it always behaves, and I expect it to be dangerous. Nature does not care about our safety. To be comfortable and safe, I have learned to be aware, and to do this I have to quieten my internal dialogue, to trust my body to tell me if something is wrong. To do that, I have to listen and be alone. Cool. It's very good. That's really good. It's very, very good. It's very surprisingly better than you think it's going to be, given, you know, you think, what can there be said about catching moles? But as a reflection on, on nature and... And the difficulty of our relationship with nature is as good as anything I've read in quite a while. Shelley, we're gonna we're busting out of the format now by turning to you and saying, "What have you been? What have you been reading mm. this week?" And you're busting out the format because I walked in and said, "I have read this thing recently that absolutely completely blew me away." And I tell you what it is, and. When people are listening, they're going to think, uh, I'm a plant, aren't they? Because it's an unbound book. <laughs> or a mole. No. Sorry. <laughs> um, honestly, honestly, this has got nothing to do with the fact that I'm here at the offices of Unbound. But this book is called The Wake by Paul Kingsnorth. And it really, really has blown me away. What is it that really grabbed you about it? OK, so I think it's immersiveness was the thing that really, really grabbed me. And in part, this is because... And if you've talked about it, John, you'll have obviously talked about this kind of shadow language. So he's like... He's really hardcore. Yeah, I don't writer. think we've ever talked about it on the podcast, oddly enough. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. So the, he basically, he... So what Paul Kingsnorth says is, I don't like reading historical novels that are it, written in modern English. And this book... it listeners will probably know, is um, set just after the Norman invasion of 1066. So I think it's 1066 to 1069, the Mm. Harrying of the North. I think it kind of finishes around the time of the Harrying of the North. And so he writes it in a language that is a kind of bridge between modern English and old English. Um, And rather like something I... I'm trying to think of something like um, Clockwork Orange. Um, you, You simply have to... Which and this is backlisted, so this is what you guys do. You have to have the patience to enter this world. You have to give it your attention. This is not a fucking tweet. Do you know? <laughs> yeah. They put that on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does all the things that all writers do in terms of creating character and da da da, which pull you in. But that, but that language to be in there, you are in this, the blurb says, post-apocalyptic world. It's a great way of describing it, I think. Yes, his, so he, his, he said it's a post-apocalyptic novel set a thousand years ago, which I yes. think is quite, was pretty good. And actually what you realise is, I know I'm banging on, you'll have to just cut this out, but what you realise is we were born pretty much in Britain knowing who the winners were. We totally accept it. We think that's the way it should have been. I used to work with a guy who was in a 1066 reenactment society. <laughs> and he, and I'm not kidding you here, this is a true thing. He lost an eye reenacting. Cracking. He lost an eye at the That's point of a sword. Commitment. Oh. And I'm absolutely serious. And he said he was taken into the hospital in his chainmail. When I worked with him, one of the things he would say with real bitterness was things really started to go horribly wrong in 1066 for this country. And I used to think, what? 
And I now have read The Wake and I'm like, mate, I am with you. You Just (laughs) stick me in chain mail, put a sword in my hand, baby. I mean, obviously, I do think it is one of the the most uh, powerful novels that's been published in the last 10 to 15 years. It's just a really strong story. We'll pick this up again after some marvellously witty and interesting adverts. We're excited uh, about um, talking about Miss Bunkle's book by... Uh, D.E. Stevenson for several reasons, but one of which is that it is a classic of English village life. And um, we all thought it would be fun to have a little village theme to today's episode. <laughs> yes. So, um, The Wake is indeed a village novel as well. And Deadwood is a village gone to the bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that poem, what was the link with Sam Riviere's poem? I think there's a couple of links there. And I think one is that, that Miss Bunkle's book is very, very much self-consciously a book you are sitting there reading. Right. And the other thing is just this little thing. He was talking about money. And for me, one of the most moving parts of the book is actually when the writer gets paid. Yeah. <laughs> it's always and no, true It's to life. always true. But actually, it is genuinely tear-jerking because whoever thinks about that, whoever writes about it, whoever writes about it, and actually she is just... That hundred pounds, it's, it's quite a thing. It cha- it's it? life-changing. Yeah. It changes it, her life. It, it does. Because she bloody needs money because she works. It's not fairies. It's not fairies giving you stories. I'm going to give some topics that I think this book is about. Village life. It's a book about books. It's a book about the mechanics of writing and publishing, which is, of course, very yeah. backlisted. And it's also a brilliant example of the sort of novel republished by Persephone in the last 20 years, which is, um, we would call middlebrow. Um, yeah. Middlebrow is, I'm, I, we've talked about this on the podcast before, is a legitimate term adopted by academia rather than I'm not being snitty by using the word middlebrow. No. Shelley, when did you first read this book or come across Miss Bunkle's book? So I have two stories to offer you. One is a direct answer to that question which is actually that I was in Hatchard's bookshop and I really 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 wanted a comfort read and honestly I wish I could remember what had happened in my life (laughs) you know but we all have everything happening in our lives now that means we need a comfort read and of course you know booksellers are gods and this particular bookseller just said look you this is the book you need and I would never ever have picked it up ever and I utterly loved it can I tell you another story can I can I tell you how Sarah Waters heard about Miss Bunkle's book? <laughs> she heard about Miss Bunkle's book because I'm a real dickhead. <laughs> so basically, I am really, really bad around people whose work I hugely, hugely admire. And I'm just awful. And I have just learned that I literally physically need to stay away from people because of a really bad thing I did to Arthur Miller once. And I'm not kidding. (laughs) I'm not kidding. It's an anecdote piling up on story. I know, I know. So um, I was at a thing that she was at and I can't tell you how much I love her work. I mean, words can't express. And she was in the room and I said to the person I was with, shit okay don't worry I'm gonna press my back against this wall and not go near her because bad (laughs) things will happen and after a while the person I was with said I think you need to be a bit braver and pulled me towards her and I involuntarily curtsied (laughs) I bobbed much as perhaps a maid in one of her lovely books might bob yeah and she was 
absolutely charming and lovely. She was, she was writing the paying guests at the time. And, you know, we were talking about all the things she'd read, Lolly Willows and stuff like that. And I said, oh, you must read Miss Bunkle's book. And she said, that's fabulous. Who's it by? And I was so starstruck that I said, R.L. Stevenson. Oh. And she kind of went, Really? What, from 1934? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, yes, thinking, commit, girl. Yes, R.L. Stevenson. And then I shuffled away and I think I cried into some crisps. Oh, but you were almost right, weren't yeah. you? Because <laughs> D.E. Stevenson was a second cousin of R.L. Stevenson. Yeah. Here we go. I'm going to do the biog right now. Dorothy Emily Stevenson was born in Edinburgh in 1892. She was the daughter of one of the Lighthouse Stevensons. Robert Louis was her father's first cousin. And she lived in Scotland all her life. Is everything OK? Yes, You're fine. looking off yeah, stage. I've just had a sudden thought about keys, but it's fine. OK. Uh, and she lived in Scotland all her life, which is interesting when you consider that she wrote about English villages in many of her mm. books. She did not go to school but was educated by a governess, started to write stories when she was eight. Um, she applied against her parents' wishes, sat and passed the entrance exams for Oxford University and was offered a place, but her parents forbade her to go, wow. fearing that a university degree was an unforgivable deterrent to potential suitors. So you suddenly, when you read Miss Bunkle's book, the wish fulfilment element is coming through loud and clear, right? So the, here's the thing about D.E. Stevenson. Uh, she wrote her first book in 1923 when she was 31. Her second did not appear for nine years. In 1934, she published Miss Bunkle's book and thereafter she wrote a novel a year selling over 4 million copies of her books in Britain and 3 million in the USA. Respect. She is amazing. If you go on the internet... Yeah, she's... A, and, yeah. and there are numerous American fan sites devoted to her work. There is a fantastic website with a page on it where you can download what's called... Susan's never-ending D.E. Stevenson's spreadsheet, <laughs> which cross-references every character and location in all those 40 novels because Stevenson liked to use the same names, locations and characters and have them pop up, like proper world-building, yeah. mm. you know. And so novels or sequences of novels that, that appear to have nothing in common with one another, she would thread together for her for her own amusement, I think, but also because she knew readers liked to play the game along with her. I have to say, I absolutely love this. This is like a large steaming mug of Horlicks on a cold winter's night. You know, it's just the most fun reading. Do you remember when Dr Ian Patterson was here talking about Julie Cooper? And yeah. we said, what's good about Julie Cooper's books? And he went, pleasure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is what this book is, right? I, I found this so incredibly enjoyable, Shelley. Because it's Persephone, and because Persephone are so classy, there's no blurb. Do do we think we could offer the listeners, like in a nutshell, what the the setup of the book is? All right, I'll give it a go. Okay, so Miss Bunkle's book is the book within the book. So Miss Bunkle lives in what, at the opening of the novel, seems to be an absolutely picture postcard chocolate box English village. And she has written this incendiary book called Disturber of well, the... Well, oh. is it called Disturber of the Peace? 
No. Ah, go on. It's called they Chronicles re- of an English Village, yeah. and her publisher changes the title. Oh, this is true. Piece. So this incendiary book um, is a, about what is really going on in an incredibly thinly disguised Silverstream. Her village is called Silverstream. She calls it Copperfield in the book. And the people are... She just is, uh, does little name substitutions, like themed name substitutions for them. And what's interesting is that the book within the book mm. begins w- with setting the scene with a peaceful little village and then a sort of goatskin-clad golden piping boy... <laughs> comes through the village, piping music, and the music sends people crazy and a huge anarchy and subversion occurs. People's lives are disrupted. And actually, pretty much, that's what happens in the book we are reading. People elope with one another. Can you read us a little bit about one of the characters who lives in the village (laughs) is reading Disturber of the Peace for the first time? Yes, I will. So the character who's reading it is called Sarah Walker. She's the doctor's wife. Mr Abbott, who is mentioned in this um, extract, is the editor of of Disturber of the Peace or Chronicles of an English Village. And the nom de plume is John Smith. So Miss Bunkle wrote the book, but the nom de plume is John Smith and no one is. Okay. She's at the point where the golden boy has has arrived. (laughs) The golden boy piped on through the high street and up the hill and then down again past the vicarage and the old church which slumbered quietly by the river. Wherever he went, he left behind him unrest and strange disturbance. People woke up, cast aside the fetters of conventional behaviour and followed the primitive impulses of their hidden natures. In some hearts, the clear, sweet music woke ambition. In some, it woke memories of other days and prompted kind actions. Some of its hearers were driven to acts of violence. In others, it kindled love. At least, John Smith said that the music kindled love. But Sarah Walker, who knew something about that commodity, something more, she suspected, than John Smith, (laughs) would have said that the emotion which the boy's pipe kindled in the hearts of its hearers was not love at all, but passion. After this, things began to happen. (laughs) In Copperfield, incredible things. Major Waterfoot discovered that he'd loved Mrs Mildmay for four years without ever having suspected it, so he rushed across the road and found Mrs Mildmay in her garden and proposed to her with a fervour which almost made Sarah's eyebrows disappear into her hair. It may be remarked in parenthesis that Sarah's eyebrows were a distinctive feature, darker than her hair and beautifully arched. This was the love scene which had made such an impression upon Mr Abbott. It was a passionate scene and had either been written by somebody who knew very little about such matters or somebody who knew a great deal. It was either very innocent or else it wasn't. (laughs) I love the lightness of the prose. The prose is really, really, really good. It appears to have been simply chatted down and in order to do that you have to be a really good writer. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, I, this book was published in the 1930s. 1934. That scene is like a brilliant Mickey take of a kind of strand in English fiction at the time in which we might include Sylvia Townsend Warner 
Uh, we might yeah. include Arthur Macon, you... the great god Pan, I, Arthur Macon, this idea of, of magical... Um, pantheistic things occurring in the English countryside yeah. is a is a is a trope in that era. Winter, and so for her to take the Mickey out of that in this context seems Winter really the willows, funny. You know, there's that the, the Winnie the Willows, yes, of course, Winnie the Willows. But it, it also goes through, don't you think, into sort of Elizabeth Jenkins as well, uh, Tortoise and the Hare, which we did. There's sort of the things bubbling under, kind of supernatural things bubbling under in English villages. The book itself is brilliant because it's a, nobody can tell whether it's satire. Or just innocent, and Miss Bunkle's book is exactly the same. You don't know. I mean, you know, you're, you're never quite sure how, on top of how cl- clever she is being. I think she is actually being very clever. There's a wonderful scene near the end of the book where you, the reader, are reading about another reader reading the book about another book, yeah. which is like something out of Calvino. Calvino, we did on the last episode. But I was thinking this is like that vertiginous. It's like the cover of Ummergum by Pink Floyd. It's like a picture in a picture in a book within this, a book this, within this, a book. This is the, 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 the bit. Yeah, it's the, like Memento. It is. Yes. It exactly. Is. The main theme exactly. of the book was concerned with the fortunes and misfortunes of Elizabeth Wade. This is the second book, which is called... Um, oh, pen, the Pen is Mightier. The Pen is the Mightier. Pen is mightier. <laughs> Miss Bunkle's Other Self. Miss Wade wrote a book, and the story of Miss Wade's career as a novelist was the story of Miss Bunkle's own extraordinary experiences. Miss Wade wrote a book and placed it with Messrs Nun and Nutmeg, the name made Mr Abbott roar with laughter. This spicy firm published Miss Wade's book and it immediately became a bestseller. The book was all about Copperfield and Copperfield was annoyed or pleased according to how it found itself in Miss Wade's book. Miss Wade's book, which was entitled Storms in a Teacup <laughs> by Jay Farrier, see what she's done there, was discussed and criticised very harshly by the Copperfieldians, at least by those of them who had no discernment. The others saw genius, which, of course, was clearly proved by the absolutely unprecedented sales. The theme was unusual and intriguing. Mr Abbott had never read a novel about a woman who wrote a novel about a woman who wrote a novel. It was like a recurring decimal, he thought, or perhaps even more like a perspective of mirrors such as tailors use, in which the woman and her novel were reflected back and forth to infinity. It made your brain reel if you pursued the thought too far, but there was no need to do so, unless you wanted to, of course. So much for the main theme. (laughs) (laughs) Now that seems to me incredibly clever. Yeah, Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you're approaching your subject in a, a manner which is light and playful, and yet at the same time you're able to create a series of images like that. That's really good, and make it easy to comprehend. You know, you get it straight away. And I think she does that again and again and again in different ways. And if you feel like clever, you can read this book and you can find lots of clever. And if you feel like your big mug of Horlicks, John, yeah. you can sit down with your big mug of Horlicks. Yeah. And I think that's a real pleasure of this book. Yes, of course, the thing about the boy and the pipe, that her pipe is the book. All the way through, there are these lovely little things. You're reading the bit about when the twins get kidnapped and you're thinking, kidnapped twins in an English village? Really, would anyone do that? And then, of course, <laughs> she puts it in the novel and Abbott says, twins kidnapped in a book, surely. <laughs> and she said, well, it actually happened. That's yeah, what, yeah. I, I can't make things up. I think it is very clever. And I, I also think it's more interesting than you're expecting it's going to be about the relationship between fiction and life. So it begins with this dream of a village, this kind of fantasy village. With the the, buns. With the (laughs) buns. We need to give some space to the buns, I think, because so the baker in the village 
knows exactly when all of her neighbours have their breakfast and she times her, her boy, her baker boy's deliveries to precisely coincide so that all of her customers get their rolls fresh on the table, hot, ready to go. And, you, and it really lulls you as a reader. I mean, it's lovely. It's a kind of fantasy. And you, I, think you, I think when I started to read that, I thought this was going to be a bit toothless, like nice yeah, yeah. but toothless. Misread. Yeah, yeah. And it totally, totally isn't. Oh, it and isn't. actually, there's some really... I think one of the things I love about this book is there's real proper humanity here. I mean, Sarah Walker that we've just read about, there's this really moving passage in which her husband reflects on her postnatal depression mm-hmm. and how he nearly lost her. There is an abusive husband yeah. in it. There is actually, absolutely, in 2019, people and problems that we will sharply... It's, you know what? It's a bit Marion Keys in that way, I think. There's also a, a totally fascinating and not judged lesbian couple, yes. right? Absolutely. Miss, Miss King and Miss Pretty. Who refer and a passing reference to the Well of Loneliness. To, to the Well of Loneliness. Yes, absolutely. So the idea of the village as a setting which superficially seems buns yes. and turns out to be much more. And what are the things that feature in this novel? which we would be surprised to find in a novel of this type, of this era? I think, um, and I am not an expert of novels of this type and era, so... Um, I, I think partly, actually, it is things like... I was surprised to see this kind of very kind of chilled approach to same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the least chilled people in it is, uh, is, is um, Miss King, the, one, one of the, one yeah. of the women in the relationship. She, she is, is stressed, but... And I think, I think the treatment of the abusive husband, and I think, um, I also think, and I and it's re- I think it's really really hard when you are a feminist reading this novel, not to have a little bit of wish fulfilment. And so I'm trying to be objective here, but I find it really interesting listening to that biographical thing you read about her not being allowed to go to Oxford, yes. and, and Sarah Walker, the doctor's wife. There's a real thing in it about how she she is smart. She is smart, smart, and she actually reads some of the medical textbooks mm. and she discusses it with her husband. And then there's this very kind of 1930s moment where I think he uses a bit of Latin and she says, well, I wouldn't know about that then, you know. Mm. That's not going to get the bottoms wiped and she stops at Latin. But, but it might be my ignorance that makes me surprised that we, we see these things that are subversive. And maybe you're going to say to me, yeah, there's loads of stuff. No, I was really interested in this book and in the subsequent. I read um, there are three sequels to this, yeah, to Miss Bunkle's book, none of which are as good as Miss Bunkle's book. The, the first sequel, Miss Bunkle Married, is fun. The sequel to that, uh, The Two Mrs Abbotts, appears to have no plot i imagine (laughs) i imagine angry listeners will now besiege me saying no no you haven't understood it but i have but the the common thread running through those books those three books which she is very good at are the patterns of female relationships within them the male characters are there to buffer the central relationships and the central relationships between the women the the married relationship between the person Miss Bunkle marries, let's not give it let's away... Let's not do spoilers. ...isn't particularly believable. Shall we say, I don't think this is a book without 
flaws. And I think <laughs> oh. that's one flaw. Do you? Okay. And I think, and I want also, I will say that um, all pretty much all of her working class characters are basically Mrs. Overall from Acorn and <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they are. Lore, yeah, Mrs. Are. Would are. you be liking another? It's It's not, you know, this is a middle class book that really doesn't kind of seek to... Dorcas her maid. I mean, it, it's interesting. She's very good on money in the book. So money's in, in, interesting. The, the vicar who decides, who's got money, who decides he wants to have a year trying to live without it in a rather feeble way. But uh, she's obviously got no money because her dividends, the, you know, her parents are both dead and her, her, the dividends are, are disappearing. It's the th- 1930s. And I think there is that background. This this is definitely, you feel, although it could be, you know, set in the in, in the Edwardian period, you do feel that the world is changing and there are threats on the, on the, on the horizon. But the money, at no point do they, does she think, oh, maybe I can survive without a maid. But Dorcas, <laughs> her maid, is, yeah, as you say, central casting, has no real agency in the plot, just is very, very thrilled to discover that she's eventually going to get married. I think the, the sharpness of um, Miss Bunkle, uh, the sharpness of uh, Stevenson as a writer, I said earlier this was a book about publishing. <laughs> I'm just going to read the beginning of chapter two. This little bit brought me so much actual pleasure. And so this is uh, Mr Abbott, with who you hear from here, is a, is a publisher. Mr Abbott looked at the clock several times as he went through his business on Wednesday morning. He was excited at the prospect of the interview with John Smith. Years of publishing had failed to dim his enthusiasms or to turn him into a soured and bitter pessimist. (laughs) Every new and promising author found favour in his eyes. He had given up trying to predict the success or unsuccess of the novels he published, but he went on publishing them and hoping that each one published would prove itself a bestseller. Last Friday morning, his nephew, Sam Abbott, who had just been taken into the firm of Abbott and Spicer, suddenly appeared in Mr Abbott's sanctum with a deplorable lack of ceremony and announced... <laughs> trying not to do an Ian Lavender voice here. <laughs> Uncle Arthur, the, the fellow who wrote this book is either a genius or an imbecile. <laughs> Something stirred in Mr Abbott's heart at these words, a sort of... Sixth sense, perhaps. And he had held out his hand for the untidy-looking manuscript with a feeling of excitement. Was this the bestseller at last? This is how Mitch, <laughs> this is how Mitch feels when one of these comes it's in. So true. His sensible publishing businessman self had warned him that Sam was new to the job and had reminded him of other lamentable occasions when authors who had promised to be swans had turned out disappointing geese. <laughs> but the flame which burned within him leapt to the challenge. The manuscript had gone home with him that night, and he was still reading it at 2am, still reading it and still in doubt. Making allowances for the exaggeration due to his youth and inexperience, Sam had been right about Chronicles of an English Village, and Mr Abbott could not but endorse his opinion. It was not written by a genius, of course, neither was it the babblings of an imbecile, but the author of it was either a very clever man writing with his tongue in his cheek or else a very simple person writing in all good faith. Whichever he was, Mr Abbott was in no two opinions about publishing him. The autumn list was almost complete, but room should be made for Chronicles of an English Village. <laughs> and he goes on to this brilliant thing he goes to say. He, he re- stays up through the night, he reads the book, he's utterly gripped by it, and it gets to the end. And uh, 
that he say he's talking about he says he's already thinking about the blurb yeah his mind was already busy on the blurb which should introduce this unusual book the author might have his own ideas about the blurb of course but mr abbott decided that it must be very carefully worded so as to give no clue no clue whatever as to whether the book was a delicate satire comparable only with the first chapter of Northanger Abbey or merely a chronicle of events seen through the innocent eyes of a simpleton. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not, you know... I know. It's, it's, it's light, it's funny, it's I mean, factually accurate. <laughs> it's great. She really carries you through these scenes. What do you think it is that speaks to people here in 2019 amongst books of this sort... There is a fascinating publishing phenomenon. I'd be interested in anyone's views on this. What, why, why, in the 21st century, is there such a hunger for and enthusiasm for books written by and about women in the 1930s and 40s? That's so interesting, isn't it? And I can't help but think there's actually lots of answers to that. I think... I mean, this is a really kind of obvious answer, but... We are more atomised and what community means now is different. And I just wonder whether there's a kind of longing, and I don't mean a kind of Brexit longing for, mm. for kind of a, something that didn't exist. I just, I just wonder whether there's a, a longing for a smaller tribe. I just wonder whether there's mm. a longing for a smaller tribe. I don't know. I think what's interesting is that one way of looking at this book is that it, it's an escape book. The community is pretty loathsome, actually, it turns out, pretty, pretty vindictive, pretty unpleasant. And I'm thinking all the time through the book is, how is she going to survive? And actually, she doesn't. She decides to not stay in the village without... I don't think I'm giving away too much. I won't exactly say how she doesn't stay in the village. But, and I think that that's one of the things, you know, I, I, love, I, read, I do like reading a lot about I, I like village fiction because I think on one level it, it is just what happens when you put small groups of human beings together and how drama is created by the tensions. And the, and the and what the book is, in a way, what the book is saying is that the book, because it's truthful, because it reveals people, there are some people who are enriched by that and who uh, gain from it and there are other people who are, who are prepared to horsewhip, <laughs> which is what Mrs Featherstone Hogg wants to do. So I think it's not... What makes this different from just pure uh, wish fulfilment? You know, things ain't what they used to be. Nostalgia mm. for a, a simpler. N- There's nothing terribly simple about this. You know, this is, um, you know, Trollopian in some ways. In its, in its kind of, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really let anyone off the hook. Also, these are books, aren't they, which are both repositories, records of the female experience in the eras in which they were written. And also evidence, proof of the marginalisation of the writers who created them. Yes. So these were seen as very... These would not have been reviewed in august literary journals at the time and arguably the, the middle brow which this represents, is not reviewed in those journals now. So there is an ongoing process of and it would, pushing it to the sidelines, right? There absolutely is. And, of course, what's really being pushed to the sidelines is the readers of it. Yeah. It's because of who reads these books that they've been sidelined. And I'm really happy that 
as you say, in, in academe, you know, mm. I've got quite, I work at Reading University and I've, I've got um, a colleague, Nicola Wilson, who's working on it absolutely bringing this straight back into the light. Yeah, because of the writers, but also because of the readers. Well, you, you were saying to me a brilliant thing earlier about how the over overemphasis put on IQ as a measure of quality, right? That yeah. not, not all books can be dazzlingly clever, and nor should they be. Though this book is in its own way dazzlingly clever, but that's not the only thing that's going on under the bonnet. And it's also not the only way that it is being, if you like, used by its readers. I think there's a real reader-centred thing here about how do we actually read and what are the pleasures and uses of our reading. And I, I know that sounds a bit cold, <laughs> perhaps. No, 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 you I, know, I, I agree. I don't mean it coldly at all. I'm so enthusiastic about this book in a very kind of non-cold way but if I were Gwyneth Paltrow I would be talking about different modalities at this point <laughs> probably and jade eggs but um <laughs> I, please don't I'm not going to do that no. now, though not now I think that there is a need to respect readers and understand why they read what they do and how they read without making a hierarchy that's what yeah. I think well it's now time for one of our irregular but always much enjoyed backlisted quizzes. Very exciting. <laughs> so this is, because I have my literary colleagues around me, I'm going to give you the names of a few fictional villages and the counties in which they are situated. And you have to give me, which may or may not be fictional, may and you have to not. give me the titles and the authors all right so i'm gonna so Come i'm on. gonna give fingers i'm gonna buzzers. bowl you some low balls to start with okay some easy ones to start with the village of alverton in dorset which is obviously adam thorpe's alverton okay very good the village of akenham in suffolk is the model for which book Ooh. is it akenfield by ronald blythe it is akenfield by ronald blythe the village of midwich in the fictional county of Winshire is the setting so that's, for... that's the Midwich Cuckoos. Bye. Oh, flip. Ah. Uh, go on, go, 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 go. <laughs> Interruption. John Wyndham. Yes, John yes, Wyndham, yes, that's yes. right. OK, so look, that's three, out, filmed three as, straight away. Filmed as... Village of the Damned. Indeed. I asked the questions. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, for this one, I want the author, and but I'm also, in order to accept the answer, I need... <laughs> It's a series of novels set in this village, but I will need the title of one of the 13 novels set in the village. Ooh. The village is Thrush Green, and that's in the Cotswolds. Thrush that, Green. That is Miss Reed, isn't it? It, it is, is Miss Reed. All I need is one novel by the best-selling <laughs> author, Miss Reed. While you think of it, her real name was Dora Jessie Saint. She died in 2012, age 98. She sold about 50 million books, and she was born in... I don't know. Croydon. Croydon. Oh, my God. <laughs> she, anyway, so Fairacre, well, that's one of her other fictional villages, and Thrush Green. You, anyone want to take a, a guess? Something at Thrush Green is, this, I'm sure, yep. absolutely... Uh, is, this, yeah. is there a title about, about the village school at some point? The school at Thrush Green. Green. I will give you that. Well done. Excellent. You could have had Gossip from Thrush Chris Green, Green yeah. Christmas at Thrush Green, Christmas. and ten more. Okay, uh, the next one. Who lived... In the village of St Mary Mead in the fictional county of either Downshire or Radfordshire, depending on which novel you read. 
Um, St Mary Mead is um, Miss Marple, isn't it? It yes. is Miss Marple by... Agatha Christie. You must name a Miss Marple novel. Oh, for flip's sake. Um, oh, geez, Louise. I can't. My brain's gone completely. No. I can give you oh, I'll let go you on. Have the body in the library, oh. 415 from Paddington. 415 from Paddington. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Go on. Hardborough in Suffolk, based on the author's experience of living in the seaside village of Southwold and opening a bookshop. Uh, it's oh, Penelope it's, Fitzgerald, the bookshop. Yeah. It, it is, yes. We had to, but we had to, we had to get that clue. We had yeah. to I bunged you an extra you clue did. in there. You okay. bunged us a title, really. The village of Mary Green in Wessex is the birthplace of who? Test of the D'Urbervilles. I'm... Do you know what? Just for fun, I'm going to say Jude the Obscure. You are right, Shelley. It is the birthplace uh, yeah. of Jude Fawley in Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Uh, so I don't know how many you scored. Someone else can top that up. That'd be good, I thought. I was very good going. Listeners, I've got a question just for you. If you're listening to this on the day it goes out, the first person to tweet me with the exact answer to this question... Is it something you can find on the internet? You must not use the internet, and we're all friends, and I'm trusting you won't. You have to give me the exact title of the novel in question, and then you will win a prize to be decided and by we me. we'll know if you look at the Yeah, internet. we'll know, right, because your browsing history will come up and I'll see it. So which novel is set in the village of Devil's End in Wiltshire? I must have the exact title of the novel and author. Devil's End in Wiltshire is the setting for which children's novel of the 1970s? Oh. Tweet me. choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.